before we um, jump into the text, I did want for us to have a moment where we could pray for our country. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, um, I mean, what an election and the results and the reaction that we see here is so big. And so um, uh, one of the things that we see is that there's a lot of pain out there, right? There's a lot of just hurt and pain um, in our country. And so there are things we need to pray for. And maybe um, you may not feel it, or maybe there's not a protest in where you live or where we live, but really there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of scars there. And uh, we see it happening. And so we have to acknowledge and pray for that. Um, another thought I had about this is that um, we often place too much of an expectation on someone in charge. You know, like, man, are you going to, can you change this? You know, and can the president-elect do all these things? And is he going to change everything? And what is one person going to do in four years? All right. And so there's, there's I think, too much of that. But thirdly is, is um, we as a church have a unique role. You know, the church is not um, simply, oh, just God bless America. It's not, we're not trying to Christianize the country. No, we're trying to Christianize our neighbors and share the love of Christ. But it's not trying to do that, per se. It's not that God favors America more than Canada or Mexico or wherever it is. No. Um, and so we have to put that in perspective and know the role of the church, that we, the church, us, we have to be the agents of change. And so we have to be the ones that say, um, I'm going to be the, the Bible calls a salt and light, that I'm going to be the preservative in our culture. I'm going to be the light that people can go to. And so there's much that we have to pray for, um, that what we're supposed to do, we often think that the politicians are supposed to do. No, it's, a lot of it's what the church is supposed to do. And so um, we want to pray for our country, and we want to pray for the president-elect and all those who locally even who will be um, leading and doing these things and just for the pain of our country. Um, and so I think it's a very uh, pivotal time for the church to really step in and uh, be the salt and light. And so if you would bow your heads with me, and we want to pray together. Um, Lord, we thank you uh, for a wonderful country that we live in. Uh, we, Lord, ask um, that you would uh, use the church, Lord, to do a mighty work in the land, to be the salt and light. And we pray for uh, President-elect Trump, we pray for um, all the new people who will be taking office and having this responsibility. Your word reminds us, God, um, Lord, that they are like a stream and you, Lord, direct the king's heart, whichever way it goes. And so, God, we pray for their wisdom and humility and, Lord, uh, for you uh, to have your will in them. And so we pray for our country. We pray just that the church uh, would shine brightly during this time. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I have a question for you, and all of us have a story like this, right? I mean, is there something? What was the best deal you ever got? Like, you felt like you, like, felt like it was so good, you felt like you stole it. Like, it was, it was such a good deal, right? Um, and I think we all have something. I remember um, at the Gap, this is when the Gap was cooler, right? And I was at the Gap, like, 10 years ago, and I bought a flannel shirt on the clearance rack, and they had mispriced it, and I think I got it for like 29 cents, right? And so it's at 29 cents, I went up, is this 29 cents? And they don't care, like, oh, wow, good deal, 29 cents, you know? And I, I still, that's my favorite flannel, and I love bragging about my flannel when I wear it, so 
one day um, I'll wear it and show you. But you know, it's like we brag and we're excited about it. And maybe you found something, um, you bought something at a certain price and it's, boy, it's worth a lot more and you are so happy. You feel like, man, I stole this. I got this for free, right? And maybe you had that. Right? And that's really the, the story of this. A guy finds a, a treasure in a field and it is so good. He can't wait to go and sell everything so he can buy this land and get that treasure. And he covers it back up, right? That's the story that we read in one verse. I mean, the modern day version of this is people who find something at the flea market or at the garage sale and it's worth a lot more, right? And there's a few. And one website said these were the two most uh, recorded, um, for, from recorded, uh, the highest, whatever, value items that were ever found, right? And the, one of them, this guy in Philadelphia, 1989, went to a flea market and he bought a, a frame. It was a picture, a frame, and a, and a painting of like a countryside. And the painting wasn't that nice, but the frame was like real wood and it was nice. So he thought, well, I'll, I'll buy it. And he bargained this way and bought it for $4, right? So he bought it for four bucks and he was going to take it home and see. And then as he brought it home, he noticed even the painting itself was like kind of peeling already. So he says, well, I bought it for the frame anyway. So he peels it off and then something falls on the ground. It's some folded piece of paper. And he picks it up and he unfolds it. And it looks like an old document. And he comes to realize that it, um, it looked like the Declaration of Independence or something like that. So he gets it, it takes it to a, uh, an expert and they realize that this was one of 20, the 24 surviving original copies of the 1776 Declaration of Independence. And he sold it for $2.4 million, right? I mean, uh, think about that. But you think that is big. I mean, there was the, the number one story that I came across on this list. Um, there's a man named Tony Marone in California in 2008. Tony Marone goes to a garage sale and he likes to collect things and he noticed when he went there there was a stack of old documents in this folder and they said ah, we're just gonna sell it you know we don't know what it is. So he pays five dollars for these documents and he goes and he takes it home and he notices one of the documents uh, was kind of interesting. It, said, it was a promissory note from way back, and it said it was 1,625 shares of a company called Palmer Union Oil Company. So now he's wondering, what is Palmer Union Oil? And he gets an attorney and that helps him to research, and he realizes that along the years, the Palmer Union Oil Company merged with another company. And then several years after that, that company merged with this small company, called Coca-Cola, right? And so that 1,625 uh, shares was equivalent to 1.8 million shares in Coca-Cola, which at that time in 2008 was worth $130 million, right? Who wants to go to garage sale after church? Like, let's go. I mean, estate sale, garage sale, rummage sale, whatever it is, like, let's go. $130 million he gets. Can you imagine how excited when, when they're saying, this is worth 130, this is one of the original, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I spent four, this is the best $5 I ever spent. And, and that's exactly how this story, this one verse that we read in 44, that's exactly what he's feeling. 
Right? Look at verse 44, Matthew 13. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then he tells another story. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price, of value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, the guy who had the, the treasure in the field, it tells us it was with much joy. Can you imagine his heart just beating out of, you know, out of control? Oh my gosh, I found this. I can't wait till I, I buy the land that this is all mine. And he is so excited in this. Can you imagine what that is like? Boy, don't we wish that we had that problem? Right? And, that's, that, and he says, this is what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. And I want to explain what kingdom of heaven here is. It, it's a, such a, a big term, right? Kingdom of heaven. The term kingdom of heaven is only used by Matthew. The other gospel writers uses the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand, Mark would say in chapter 1 of his gospel. But Matthew uses kingdom of heaven because Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And that's why his genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham. He wants to prove to the Jew that Jesus is the Messiah. And since the Jew would not even utter the name God or even write the name God, they would change and use things like Heaven instead of God. So the kingdom of heaven is like, right? And so, um, and we, in, we, we hear it often, we're in the church, we say you shouldn't use the Lord's name in vain. And so today you'll hear people say, oh, for heaven's sake, because they don't want to say for Christ's sake, because it's using the Lord's name in vain. And that's really the usage here. The kingdom of heaven, it means the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. The kingdom thought, and I want to share this quote with you, um, from William Hendrickson. He says, and I just want to read the first part. The point of this parable is that the kingdom of heaven, the glad recognition of God's rule over heart and life. Let's just pause it. The glad rule over God's heart and life. And that's what the kingdom of heaven life means. So when he says he went and found this, this treasure, what he's saying is he found the Christian life. God ruling in my life, the kingdom life, that he rules in my life. When Jesus, when Mark says that Christ is here, the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying the ruler is here. He's here and his plan will flourish. And so now going back to all of this, let's simplify. It's the Christian life. That I'm a Christian, um, God rules my life. And he rules my life. And so when this guy says he finds a treasure, he is saying it's like someone who has found a life in Christ. Now, this treasure, um, back in the first century, uh, one of the commentators was saying how um, if someone came across a big inheritance, a big you know, sum of money you weren't expecting, they would usually you do three things with it. Um, they would take a third, usually, and they would invest it and start some kind of a business or something. They would start selling things or whatever it is. So they want to make money. But because there were no banks and the security and all of that, um, the second thing they would do with a second third of their money is they would go and buy jewelry. They would go try to buy especially pearls. Pearls were really the diamonds of the first century. It was worth the most. So if you could find one, if you could find a pure or a good one, it was really priceless. 
And so they would buy jewelry because it's easy to hand down to the next generation. You could give to your kids, to give to their kids. Um, it's easy to transport. And so they would buy jewelry. And so this is why he mentions it in these few verses, the pearl. And thirdly, they would go and take, take it in the form of gold coins often, and they would bury it in their land. Because sometimes the enemies might come, and they would have to run away. They would lose their pearl, so they would bury their money. This was their safe deposit box. There was no bank, and there was no FDIC to insure it. So you go bury it. But what would happen is people would bury their money and circumstances would happen and some would pass away, some would move away, and they would forget about it. So along the years, people would find big, you know, clay jars filled with gold coins. I mean, even uh, as recent, um, in 1998, uh, they found a clay jar filled with 751 gold coins, right? And uh, last uh, 2008, in, near, in a parking lot in Jerusalem, as they were digging in and fixing it, they found a jar with 264 gold coins from that era. And so this is very, somewhat of a common occurrence. That, man, if I could find this, this is jackpot, this is free. Right? And so this is a story that he's telling, that the Christian life, God's rule in your life, is priceless. And here, uh, and I was, it's interesting, right? Because this parable is one verse, really, verse 44. And, but yet, uh, I was going through this, and I wanted to share some of my insights with you this uh, morning about the kingdom life or the Christian life. Number one, and there's five points. Number one, the kingdom life is hidden, right? This uh, treasure is hidden in verse 44. It's hidden in a field. The kingdom life is, is hidden. This means that... Um, Unless you discover it and find it, most people don't know about it. There's no value in this. So the guy who finds the treasure knows that plot of land is not just worth whatever the owner would pay, but he would pay double, triple, quadruple because he knows what's in it. Whereas everyone else that walks by that plot of land thinks it's just a dirt patch. It's worthless. And we see here the whole progression in chapter 12 and 13 as he's talking to the Pharisees. And in chapter 13 now, the great crowds gather in verse 2. And he's explaining, remember the, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Sam preached on the four soils. And it was a great crowd and most of them weren't getting it. And they were like the ones that were the seeds that were falling on the rocks. But what happens is after he preaches the great crowd in verse uh, 36, he says he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came with him. Now he's with his inner 12 or so. And he's telling them, the masses don't get it. The public doesn't get it, but you are going to get this kingdom life. So we as a Christian, uh, you might feel this tension often. Um, when you go to work or when you're at school or you're with um, friends who don't go to church and you're around them, and you're like, boy, like, the values are a little different. The things that are excited about are a little different. And often we say, well, don't I have to get my cues from the world? Like, I should be excited for the things that are here and now. If I get a raise, I'm excited. If I find something, I'm excited. Isn't that what it's all about? But you say, boy, but, but my faith, there's kind of this tension within because I have a faith that says it's more than that. We as Christians, it, it's, it keeps talking. Jesus keeps telling us, you're not a, the popular majority group. You're a unique, a few. 
And so when you go into the world around you, you go to the workplace and everyone is celebrating and they're enjoying these things and you say, boy, I don't find ultimate satisfaction in that and I feel like, do I have to learn from that? No, you are different. You're a person of faith. You have faith in Christ. And so just as the public, the masses would walk by that field and think, and not even look twice. That's how kind of the world around us is with Jesus Christ. But the ones that see who he is changes everything. It changes everything. Um, the second part of the kingdom life or the Christian life is that it's a future grace. Uh, we're going to gain something in the future. The ultimate joy is still yet to come, right? Uh, this story, right? He goes, um, look at verse 44 again. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So he has to go to this whole process. So this isn't an instant thing. He goes, he digs it up, he finds it. Now he has to cover it up. He wants it to look normal. He doesn't want someone else to come across it. And then he has to go back home and he has to sell all of his stuff because the land costs X amount. And it's going to cost everything. Man, all of my shoes, all of my collections, all of my hobbies. You know, I got to sell everything so I can go and get that land. So it's a delayed gratification. But in our world today, it's all about the instant, the here and now. What am I going to get out of this now? Am I being blessed now? The Christian life says your ultimate joy is not from what you receive now, but what you will get. And really, that's a big, big difference. Um, you may see your friends, and you might even see on Facebook or whatever, people are like, I'm so blessed. I got a job, you know, and I got a raise. I got a promotion, you know, and I, I found this. Or People are excited about the things that they get now, but the ultimate form of blessing is what we will, will get. And so the Bible talks about joy in suffering. Right, because really, you think about it, how does that make sense? Well, what do you mean joy in suffering? But the Bible says you could be joyful in your suffering because of what is to come. The world will say, there is no joy in suffering. I just want good news. I just want good things now. But the life that we have in the kingdom is a life of what is to come. For example, uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.12, you know, dear friends, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. And though something strange were happening to you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. That you may be overjoyed when the glory of God is revealed. When I meet him in glory, when I meet him in heaven, I would be overjoyed. These are, Peter, when he writes this, they were burning Christians on the stake. And he writes his letter to people who are suffering. Uh, Paul writes Philippians while he's in prison. And he keeps telling people to rejoice and rejoice and rejoice because there is a future. There is something they're going to get. The guy who buries everything, he goes and he sells everything. And as he's selling, all he could think about is what he's going to get. He's not worried about, oh man, this has such sentimental value. I got these shoes, you know, for Christmas 10 years ago and I got the... Then he's like, all, all I think about is what I'm going to get. 
He's not mourning the loss of the things he's getting rid of. So we look forward to this. I remember the end of my senior year in high school. My, um, you know, I remember we ended in June and UC Riverside was starting at the end of September. It seemed like forever. So my parents said, you know, you're, you know, all you're going to do is sleep all the time. And I catch myself saying that to my kids, right? All you're doing is sleeping all the time. Get up and do something. Like what? I don't know. Just do something. Be productive. And one of the things they said is, paint the, you're going to paint the house. You know, you're too lazy, you and your brothers. You're going to paint the house. As I paint the house, we never painted the house. I said, paint the house. Four-bedroom house, 2,500 square feet. Paint the house. You know, we need a new, new paint. So they said, the sooner you paint, then I'll let you go play. You go play basketball or go hang out, watch movies with your friends. But you can't do it until you finish. So we painted, me and my brother, we painted the inside of our house in exactly two days. I mean, we went crazy because we were like, freedom, please. Like, and so we'd get up, and we would paint till like midnight. And then we're like, OK, we're done, we're done. And um, you know how that is, right? And the rest of the years I lived with my parents, all I see were spots I missed everywhere. Like, oh, it's horrible. So that same summer, a friend of mine, um, I put two and two together. Now it makes sense. But he heard that I painted the house. He says, hey, you paint houses? You want to paint my parents' house? I was like, are you crazy? No, you know? And he says, my parents, and this is what they told me. He goes, they're going to pay you, you and your brother and your friends, 50 bucks each to paint the house. And I thought, those people, that, man, I was like, that's a family. My parents, horrible. Like, they're paying 50 bucks. So I was like, oh, I'll, 50 bucks? You know, I, I haven't seen a $50 bill back then. This was real. And I'm like, okay, let's go paint it. So I'm painting that house. And I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? I'm painting this house. This house was bigger than my parents' house a little bit. I'm painting the house. You know, quality was about the same when we finished, but I paid 50 bucks, right? 50 bucks. What am I, it's going to last me till my sophomore year in college. You know, like, I got 50 bucks. What am I going to do with 50 bucks? Um, but really, whether it's our paycheck, whether it's the three-day weekend that it's over now, right? Um, or the, the, the Thanksgiving break and the Christmas. And we're, we, we're always looking forward to something. And when we have nothing to look forward to, um, there is no joy in that. And the Christian, the follower of Christ, has the ultimate future, an eternity with God in heaven. So I'm always looking forward to that. So even in struggles and pain and death, I could still be joyful because I'm ultimately going to have this with him. You know, the kingdom life offers also um, a life with Jesus with a lot of benefits, thirdly. Um, we get a lot of things from him, a forgiveness of sins and his presence um, in our lives, his wisdom, his uh, you know, power for us to love others, uh, assurance of salvation. All these things we get here and now, right, as well. Um, so we get that as well. Fourthly, the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom life is valuable because Christ is valuable. So we often look at God as a means to an end. Like, I like God because God's going to get me this. I like God because God's going to get me a good wife. And God will give me uh, uh, smart kids. You know, God will give me this kind of job. God will, God will, God will, God will. And we often think of just the benefits of God. But ultimately, as a follower of Christ, it is the value of him that matter most. The guy that goes away from the field, the treasures in the field, is thinking about, can you imagine if you found that? Wouldn't you be thinking about that treasure all the time? You would be thinking about how much that is worth. 
What am I going to do with that? How, how much, you know, wow, each coin, if each coin is worth uh, three months' wages and there's a thousand coins, I mean, what is that worth and what can I do with this and how is this going to change my life? And you could think about all the things. We would be thinking about it all the time. Here, we're called to value Christ, right? Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Uh, whatever I gain, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain. Uh, surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is why our theology matters. This is why our correct understanding of Christ, or what theologians call Christology, matters. That we know him, and we know him properly. We know the value of who he is. We understand who he is, that he was 100% God who came in the form of a man, and he became 100% man, still being God, the eternal God, so that he could be the high priest that could go on our behalf to God. We have to understand this and the worth of our God. And once we grasp the worth of who he is, it changes everything, doesn't it? He is valuable, um, and he is far more valuable than anything here on earth. You know, J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, says this. He says, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God, to know the value of Him? When I was in high school, uh, my mom gave me uh, uh, this little gold bowl-looking thing. It's like a little bowl. It's like you put something on top. And she goes, you're old enough now. I'm going to give you this. And I was like, oh, thank you. You know, what is this? And she goes, listen, she goes, don't ever lose this. Um, your grandfather at 19, whatever, 22 or something, you know, went to Japan and he got this and he gave this to me to have. This is gold. This is worth a lot of money. He goes, you hold on to it. And whenever you want to, later on, you could give it to your kids, you could sell it, whatever. Don't lose it. So from high school, college, that thing was following me around everywhere, right? Like, I, I got to keep it safe, you know, because that thing's from 1922. It's gold from Japan. It's, it's, it's good, you know. It's from Grandpa, and I would keep it in my sock drawer and keep it. And then when I, you know, uh, got married, oh, honey, don't make sure, you know, don't, don't use this as a bowl. You know, this is uh, priceless. You know, we got to put it in a safe place. What about the... You know, eight, seven, eight years ago, gold price was high, and there was someone at our church who was buying gold, selling gold. I go, is it worth a lot? He goes, it's worth a lot. It's like, this is the time, right? I was so excited. I was like, I'm going to sell this bull that I've been lugging around my whole life. So he came over. I was like, and he was like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, look at I, I buy necklaces and rings. I like, forget all that. I have a bull. Like, you know, it's better than a necklace. And I was like, look at this. And I give him the bull. He looks at it, examines it. And really, my heart was like, oh, yeah, you know, this is going to be good. Like, this is going to be good. Honey, we're going to go get steak tonight. You know, like, let's go. And he looks at it. He goes, oh, he goes, oh Pastor Steve, let me show you something. Go, yeah. See, in the back, it says GP. I go, yeah, yeah. Go, it means, it says, that stands for gold plated. And I was like, oh, you mean it's a, you call it a plate and not a bowl? I don't care what you call it. He goes, no, it's gold plated because it's not real. 
I was like, that useless grandpa of mine, you know, like, I'm like, geez, he lied to my mom for all her life and life. I'm like, what do you mean it's not real? He goes, it's not real. real. I go, come on, it's got to be worth something. Goes, it's not real. I don't know if I ever had the heart to tell my mom, you know, I, I think I did mention it to her at that time, but I looked that thing around because I thought it was so valuable. You think about all the stuff that we hold on to, that we think is so important. At the end of it, it's not that important. It ends up in a drawer somewhere. It's worthless. It's not, it doesn't last. And so we understand, I have a faith that believes in Jesus Christ, the son of the second person of the triune God, eternal God. I have that kind of faith, and he loves me. That is now solid gold. That is everything. He is worthy. And the way we respond to that truth as only lo- any logical person would, is it requires a joyful sacrifice. And it sounds almost, uh, um, you know, contradictory, right? Joyful sacrifice. You say, sacrifice can't be joyful. Joyful doesn't mean sacrifice. It seems to be two words that are almost the opposite. But if you've ever experienced love for someone, you know exactly what a joyful sacrifice is. If you've ever been in love with someone, you know what that joyful sacrifice is, and you, would, you want to give everything that you have for the person that you love, because they matter more. It only expresses the love that you have. You have to sacrifice. A love cannot not sacrifice. And here, in this, which I love, In verse 44, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. In his joy. He wasn't forced to do it. It wasn't out of guilt. You know, it wasn't a moral thing. It was just out of joy he goes. And he sells all that he has. If you love someone, if you love someone, to give them something, you want to give them everything. Moms and dads, your, your child needs something. You want to give them everything. I mean, what, is, what holds you back? You're like, if I give them everything, it'll spoil them. I can't give them everything, but I would give them everything. Those of us, you know, newlyweds, for your spouse, you say, man, I'd give her everything. You know, I, I want to give everything, you know. Um, it's a joy, it's a privilege. You don't go to your loved ones and say, you know, hey, here, here are the flowers. You know, this was in the booklet that Pastor Steve made me read. Here are the flowers. Here it is. It's my duty. No. We say, I, I, it brings me joy to give you these flowers. Do you like it? Do you like it? Here. Do you like it? Oh, I love it. It brings me more joy to give in this way. And so, so it is with our faith in Christ. That he is greater than all things. Um, and you know, one of the things that's interesting, and I, I just want to close with this thought. The older we get, the harder these kind of messages become. You know, if I go to a group, if I go, and I've spoken at retreats and conferences where it's, everyone is under 20, 22 years old. And the preacher, or I'm telling them, give your life, and everyone's fired up. They want to give their life. They want to go do this. Why? Because at that point, they don't have a lot of stuff. Right? They don't have a lot of stuff. Give all your money. They're like, I'm, I'm just in, in a student loan. I'm going to go. Like, I don't care. I'll go. And we're, we've all been there. 
But the older we get, start gaining more stuff. I'm kind of settled down now in this house, in this city. Let me give that up. My kids, they have their social lives and they have their school life. Let me give up. what. And so we don't like hearing this, but we have to hear this. And I want to challenge us that Christ wants everything because he is worthy of everything. And I don't want you to walk away guilty. This man that went to the field didn't walk away guilty. He went with joy. I can't wait because he understood this. And what we have to pray for is that we would get a, a bigger faith, that God would open my eyes to see the value of him, that I would understand that. And I close with this prayer from A.W. Tozer in his classic book, The Pursuit of God, and he closes with this prayer. He says this, O God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace I am ashamed of my lack of desire, O God, the triune God. I want thee. I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Now what a prayer that is. What a prayer he says. And I hope that that would be our prayer. God, help me to see your value. Help me to see how worthy you are, how worthless a lot of these things are. Help my joy and my worth not to come from the things that are worthless, but from you. The pearl, the treasure that's worth everything and more. Help me to understand that. What a wonderful story Jesus tells us. Now let's pray together. Um, Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story. It's so simple, yet so deep. Um, We often, God, are the ones that find the treasure, we bury it, we walk away, and we struggle what we should do. It makes no sense when we read this. Obviously, we need to sell. Obviously, we need to go and give ourselves to this. And so, God, teach us to do that. Help us to do that, Lord. Give us a desire uh, for you. Help us to long for you, as uh, Tozer prayed. Help us to grasp who you are more and more. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.